You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Rethinking Economics, Lectures and Seminars on World Economics. This is the last lecture of the cycle, and then there's also a seminar set after this. This is lecture 14, entitled World Economics, Living Concepts, given in Dornach on August 6, 1922. You will have seen that the main object of our present studies was to find concepts, or rather pictures, of the economic life, such as would help us actually to get inside it. In none of the activities that are now being pursued in the anthroposophical movement, and in which I have myself been taking part, is it my opinion that all the existing scientific information should be simply flouted. On the contrary, I am convinced that there is a wide range of very useful conclusions in the existing sciences. The method of treatment, however, both in natural science and in the other branches of knowledge, needs to be developed in some essential respects. Thus I have tried mainly to give you pictorial concepts, ideal pictures, to aid you in making proper use of the wide range of valuable material that is already there in economic science. For this reason I have given you pictures that could really live. A living phenomenon, you may be sure, is always many-sided and contains many meanings. Many of you may, therefore, go away from these lectures with the feeling that various objections can be made to what has been said. In a sense, I shall be rather glad if you do have this feeling, provided it is combined with real earnestness and with a genuine scientific spirit. Faced by a living phenomenon, this feeling is indeed inevitable. Life will not endure dogmatic theories, and it is in this sense that you must conceive the ideal pictures I have given to you. The thought picture of money growing old or getting used up is a particularly suggestive one. You must relate yourself to such an ideal picture as you would to, let us say, a growing human being. You have a general feeling that a particular person will prove to be very capable in one direction or another. You may have fairly definite ideas of what this person will accomplish, but these ideas could well turn out to have been mistaken. This person may accomplish what is destined in quite other ways. So, too, for the concept of monies being used up in course of time, you may find various ways in which this can be brought about. The way I have tried to present the situation is as one conceived as little as possible along bureaucratic lines. It results naturally from the economic life itself. Many objections may no doubt be made. Here is a very easy one. How will it be settled that an entrepreneur puts young money and no other into business? After a short time, it may no longer be recognizable whether the money was young or not, for business will be going on. In answer to this, you must bear in mind 
that we do not simply get the money from the sky. We borrow it from someone. Moreover, you can see from my book titled Towards Social Renewal that I do not like interest on, excuse me, that I do not think interest on money should be abolished, provided the money has real value. On the contrary, I believe that up to a point interest is actually necessary in the economic life. You may wonder how you, as an entrepreneur, can get money from those who might lend it to you if you are going to pay them interest for an extremely short time. They will wish to give you money only on the assumption that they will get interest out of your business for as long a time as possible. Thus you may find that it is not enough simply to let money grow old in the way described. This may lead you to think out the method in greater detail. For instance, money issued today might be date-stamped, not with the present year but with the future year, in such a way that the value increases up to that year and after that it decreases. In short, a living thing may realize itself in a variety of ways. By the act of grasping it livingly, you give it the possibility to realize itself in the most varied ways, just as living human beings can use their capacities in various ways. This is the essence of a non-dogmatic concept. To make such concepts your own, especially in economics, is to see how well these things enter into real life. Only on this foundation will you be able to make proper use of what is given in the so-called economic science of today out of quite good but only partial observations. Take, for example, what is said of price. You will be told that the conditions determining price levels are the following, so far as the sellers are concerned their relative need for money, the value of the money, the costs of production that they have to meet, and the competition among buyers. But if you analyze these concepts, you will always find that though you can think about them rightly enough, you cannot enter with them into the realities of economic life. You would first have to ask yourself if it is an economically healthy state of affairs, if prices rise and fall, when it happens that a particular entrepreneur is in need of money at a particular time. Thereby, in accordance with the private need for money, should prices rise or fall in a particular direction? Can the utility value, the German is Gebrauchswert, can the utility value of money, if we may call it so, work in a healthy way at all? Both prices and utility value can work in a healthy and in an unhealthy way. Or, again, speaking of costs of production, it can be desirable for the attainment of a healthy price not to think how the price will come out, of, how the price will come out if costs of production are looked upon as something absolute. But on the contrary, to think how the costs of production for a given article might have to be reduced so that it has a healthy price when it comes into the market. In other words, you need to have concepts that really begin at the beginning. You cannot let a living human being begin life at the age of 25, nor should you let your concepts, which are to enter into real life, begin at any arbitrary point. 
You should not let your economic concepts begin, for example, with the competition of buyers or sellers. May it not be, under certain conditions, the fundamental error of our economic life that an excessive competition exists between sellers or between buyers? These are matters of principle that must be taken very much in earnest. Quite apart from whether one or other of you may agree with particular parts of our exposition, the endeavor has been throughout to make our concepts living. If they are living, then in a given case, they will show of their own accord how they need to be modified. What matters is that we should be brought onto the path of these living concepts. If we have money that is used up, that is, grows old, then, inasmuch as money comes into circulation and figures as purchase money, loan money, and gift money, the peculiar qualities of money will bring it about in the natural course, if they are allowed to function in a purely economic and unhampered way, that the demand for young money will arise at one place and the demand for old money at another. If I could go on elaborating these things for many weeks, you would see how well they fit in with a sound economy. Wherever an illness arises in the economic system, you would see that it is just by observing these things and acting accordingly that it can be healed. What is it that really emerges when we think in this way? In money, in circulation, we have a kind of reflection of the element of use and wear that is present throughout the whole range of consumable goods. And even spiritual cultural services are consumable goods for the economic life. In a money that wears out, we have a parallel process to goods, commodities, and real values, which also wear out. What do we have in effect if we receive this parallelism between the real value and the token value? We can extend it over the entire world economy. Truly, we may describe it essentially as a kind of bookkeeping system for the whole world economy. It is the world's bookkeeping. When some item is transferred or delivered, this simply signifies the entry of an item in another place. In actual practice, the transfer is done by passing money and commodities from hand to hand. The principle is fundamentally the same. Whether we contrive to record the items in their proper places in an immense bookkeeping system embracing the whole world economy, and so direct things simply by transferring credits, or whether we write out a check and give it to the person concerned, so that the thing is done in external action. In the circulation of money, we have, in effect, the world's bookkeeping. This is, as everyone can really see for themselves, what should be aimed at. In this way we give back to money the only quality that it can properly have, that of being the external medium of exchange. Look into the depths of economic life, and you will see that money can be nothing else than this. It is the medium of exchange of services or things done. In reality, human beings live by the things actually done, not by the tokens thereof. It is quite true that money can create a false impression of things done. 
and with the rise of a kind of intermediate trade in money. The whole economic life can thus be falsified. This kind of falsification is possible when we do not give money its true character. It is important for us to see, as I emphasized in the last lecture, that different kinds of services must be judged in different ways with respect to the values circulating through the economic life. As we saw yesterday, what is gained from nature to begin with and on which labor is expended corresponds to the picture of, quote, labor united with an object of nature, close quote. In a certain sense, we can begin the economic process at this point. Here, we may say that the value is created by the labor that I unite with a particular product of nature. But in the economic process, there is also the contrary stream, which comes into play the moment there are spiritual cultural services or products. As soon as these come into play, another formula of valuation, if I may call it so, has to be introduced. Quote, a spiritual cultural product is worth the amount of labor that it saves to the person who contributes it. Close quote. Take, for example, the artist who paints a picture and thereby provides a value, a value for which real interest is felt, otherwise it would not be a value. If the production of the picture and the existence of the artist are to be economically healthy, the artist must value it in this way. It must save the artist the amount of labor required to satisfy the artist's needs during the time that it will take to produce a new picture in like manner. Thus, in economic process, spiritual cultural services or products come to meet those that are mainly based on the elaboration of nature, that is, on manual labor, on means of production. On the one side, we must have labor uniting itself with the means of production, while on the other side labor must be saved or spared. Thus there arises the economic circuit with its two opposing streams, which must compensate each other in a healthy way. The great question is how the two opposing streams will compensate each other. In the first place, we need only bear in mind the universal bookkeeping of our world economy. It is here that we should find the items on either side that must, somehow, be mutually balanced. This would be the source of price. But the point is that the items in this universal bookkeeping must mean something. Item A that I insert will correspond to what we may describe as, quote, labor united with nature, close quote. Or item B will correspond to, quote, so much labor is saved by this service. Close quote. Every such item must have concrete meaning. It can have a meaning only if it represents something that is co comparable, or which is, at least, made comparable by the economic system. We cannot simply ask how many nuts a potato is worth. We cannot ask a question like that without more information. First, we must say that the, in quotes, nut signifies a nature product united with human labor. 
The, in quotes, potato signifies a nature product united with human labor. Then we can ask how the two values are to be compared. The problem is to find something that will enable us to assess economic values one against the other. It becomes still more difficult if you take, say, a literary essay. The essay, too, must be economically worth the amount of physical labor upon some means of production that is saved by it, minus the very small amount of physical work spent on the actual writing. At any rate, you can see that this is not altogether easy to work out how these things are to be compared or assessed against each other. By taking hold of the economic process from another angle, we shall find means of reaching such an assessment nevertheless. We have the physical labor spent on the means of production, including nature itself. At a given time it is quite a definite amount of labor. I mean that at a given time a definite amount of labor is needed, shall we say, to produce wheat over a given area, say x square meters of land, taking, in quotes, production as ending in the moment when the wheat is in the merchant's hands or at some other given point. Once more, then, a definite amount of labor is needed to produce wheat. It is a given magnitude, which under certain conditions can actually be ascertained. Properly regarded, all human economic service or achievement, of whatever kind, eventually takes us back to nature. There is no other possibility. The farmer works upon nature directly. Those who provide, shall we say, clothing, do not work directly upon nature, but ultimately their work goes back to nature. Their labor will contain an element of labor saved to the extent that they apply spirit or mind to it. Nevertheless, even their work has its connection with nature. Everything, right up to the most complicated of spiritual cultural services, eventually goes back to nature, to labor that is expended upon the means of production. Think it through clearly, and you will see that everything in economic life can be traced back in the long run to bodily work upon nature. The process begins from nature. Values are created there by the application of labor. And it is these values, taken to some definite point still as close to nature as possible, which have to be distributed over the whole of a closed economic domain. Go back to the hypothetical case I gave yesterday, the closed village economy. In such a self-contained village economy, you have the manual workers. And I assumed that the only spiritual cultural workers were the parson and the schoolmaster and possibly the village clerk. It is a very simple economy. Most of the people are doing physical labor, physical work upon the soil. In addition, they have to do enough physical work to provide for the needs, food, clothing, and so forth, of the schoolmaster, parson, and clerk. It will be additional, because the schoolmaster, the parson, and the village clerk do not do their work upon nature themselves. Say that the village economy consists of thirty farmers plus the three, what shall we call them, receivers of honoraria? These three supply their spiritual, cultural services, 
they need the spared labor of the rest. Suppose that each of the thirty farmers gives to these three, or to each one of them, a token, a ticket, on which is written an amount, say X, of wheat, that is, wheat elaborated to a certain point. Another member of the community might give a ticket on which something else was entered, something comparable to wheat for purposes of consumption. These things can be ascertained. The schoolmaster, the parson, and the clerk will collect these tickets. Instead of going out into the fields to procure their wheat and rye and beef for themselves, they will hand over their tickets to those concerned, who in their turn will do the necessary labor in addition to their own and will give them the product in exchange. That is a process that cannot help developing of its own accord. It cannot possibly be otherwise, nor does it make any difference if it occurs to some bright individual to introduce metallic coins instead of tickets. Some kind of tokens must be devised based on the stored-up material labor, labor expended on means of production, labor invested in economic values. And these tickets must be handed over to those who need them so that they can save themselves the labor. You will see, therefore, that no kind of money can in reality be anything other than an expression of the sum of means of production available in a given region, means of production including in the very first place the land itself, reduced to the form in which it can be most suitably expressed. This will relate the economic process to something that we can at least grasp. It is not possible to bring about an economic paradise anywhere on earth. Let those believe it who invent utopias without reference to reality. It is easy to say that an economy should be set up in a particular way. But an economy, including that economy of the entire earth that we can call world economy, cannot be absolutely determined, but only relatively so. Suppose that in a closed economic region we have an area, say, AR, of land. Now, suppose all the people in this area are doing everything that is possible for human beings to do. Then a different amount will be available for consumption if B million people live in this area of land than will be the case if the population is B sub 1 million. In effect, the economy thus depends on the ratio of population to the area of land, and, how, and on how much a given population can get out of the given area, for it is from the land that everything ultimately comes. Take now the hypothetical case of an economic area that has a population of, say, 35 million. The number does not matter. What holds true here of a self-contained economic territory is true also of the world economy. Assume there to be 35 million inhabitants at a given time, and that the problem is to bring these 35 million people into an economically just relation. I may not be putting it quite clearly and precisely, but you will soon see what I mean. What would you do, excuse me, what would you have to do if you wished such a condition to prevail among these 35 million that would bring about feasible prices? 
The moment you begin to lead over the economic life of the region into a healthy condition, you would have to give each one of them an amount of land corresponding to one thirty-five millionth of the entire area available for production, adjusted according to fertility and ease of cultivation. Suppose that every child were to receive such an area of land at birth, to be worked by him or her perpetually. The prices that would thus arise would be feasible prices for such an area, for things would then have their natural exchange values. Now, the curious hypothesis that I have here put forward is nothing other than the reality. The economic process actually does this of its own accord. Of course, you will not believe that I mean what I am now saying in any other than a figurative sense. Yet these are the actual conditions. You can imagine the entire area distributed among the people concerned remembering that they will also have to elaborate in the proper way such products as become detached from the soil. You can imagine the entire area divided up among the population, and it is in fact this which gives to each individual thing its exchange value. Indeed, it might well be that if in some place you were to write down the actual exchange values, you would find a very close approximation. But if you now compare this with ordinary, present-day conditions, you will find the price of one thing far above and the price of another far below that level. Still, if you like to suppose a utopia somewhere, populated solely by newborn children, looked after by angels to begin with, to each of whom you have given a piece of land, then when they are able to begin work, you will have produced conditions under which the natural exchange values will arise. If prices are different after a time, it can only mean that one has taken something away from another. It is this kind of thing that produces the various social discontents. People dimly feel that here something works into the process that does not correspond to the real prices at all. If the economic life becomes permeated with a way of thinking such as we have here adopted, the actual measures we take would bring about the result I have stated. It all depends on that. We would find that our currency, representing the day-to-day bookkeeping of world economy, would have to be inscribed, quote, wheat producible over a given number of acres, close quote. This amount would then be equated to other things. The various products of the soil are the easiest easiest things to compare. You see, where it is we must start. Our figures must mean something. It simply leads away from reality if money has inscribed on it so much gold. It leads toward reality if it has inscribed on it, quote, this represents so much labor upon X product of nature, close quote we would then have this result. Say there is written on the money, quote, X wheat, close quote. All money will be stamped, quote, X of wheat, Y of wheat, Z of wheat, close quote. The real origin of the whole economic life would then be made evident. Our currency would be referred to the usable means of production upon which bodily work is done, that is, 
the means of production of the given economic region. The only sound basis of currency is the total of the usable means of production. Those who can look into the realities of life with an open mind will see, as they perceive the situation, that this is so. It may be objected that no one one value can be precisely equated to another, but to a great extent this can be done. In this method of valuation, everything is ultimately valued through consumption. Therefore, the values of different kinds of services do not differ so very much from one another. However much spiritual-cultural a worker I may be, I need so much saved labor every year, as much as I require to maintain myself as a human being. Moreover, by this means, it will be evident how and to what extent a spiritual-cultural worker needs something in addition, beyond what a manual laborer needs. When the issue has become as transparent as this, it will be acknowledged, because it is transparent. Even today, conditions do exist, though they become increasingly rare, in self-contained economies under which such workers receive all that they need. The others give to the spiritual cultural workers gladly, without even writing it down on slips of paper beforehand. In saying this, I do not wish to reduce an economic argument to a sentimental one. I say it simply because this too is part of the realities of economics, and because in an economic system you are, after all, always dealing with human beings. Above all, you will attain in this way a relationship between the members of an economic whole that will be really visible to all. Everyone in every moment will then have their connection with nature, even in the money. It is just this which makes our present-day relations so unhealthy. They have become so far remote from nature. The connection with nature is no longer there. If we can bring it about, and it is only a question of evolving the necessary technique in the associative life, that we really have the nature value recorded on our paper money in place of the indefinable gold value, then we shall see directly in everyday business and interaction how much a given spiritual cultural service is worth. I shall know, when I paint a picture, that for me to have painted this picture, so many workers on the land, for example, have to work for so many months or years on on wheat or oats and so forth. Think of how transparent the economic process would become. The ordinary way of phrasing it today would be to call it the substitution of a nature currency for a gold currency. Yes, and that is just what we need. For by this means true economic conditions will be brought about. Once again I have placed a picture before you. I have to speak in these pictures as they give the reality. What people generally have in their heads in economic activity today is not reality. Those alone have the reality who in receiving a piece of money of a certain magnitude in exchange for something know that it signifies so much work upon the land. We must, of course, include in our calculations the work that is done on other means of production. 
These will, however, be equivalent to nature. For the moment they are finished, and thus leave the realm of commodities altogether, they are devalued inasmuch as it is no longer possible to buy or sell them. They thus become equivalent to the means of production that we have in nature directly. It is therefore only a continuation of the part that nature already plays in the economic process when we say that means of production should be dealt with in this way. Moreover, it is only in this way that we can have a clear idea of nature itself as means of production. The concepts of land that you will generally find in economics are always open to objection, unless you conceive of means of production in the way I attempted in my book titled Toward Social Renewal. You need only consider that even a given region of nature may have to be worked upon to some extent before it is available as, in quotes, land, before it is fit for cultivation. Up to the moment when nature, or a given part of nature, has been cleared and can be handed over for use, during this period also some labor must be expended on it. In other words, by the time this labor has been done, even a piece of land may justly be considered a commodity, an economic value, in the sense that it is a part of nature combined with human labor. Only by formulating the ideas in the way we have done will you make the concept, quote, means of production, close quote, clear and transparent, and you will then be able to work it out in the most varied spheres. You will perceive when, for example, an author writes an article that the main value of it, economically speaking, consists in the labor saved. From this, you would have to deduct only the minute amount of bodily work that the actual writing entails. Your concepts will be capable of differentiation in manifold directions so that you stand with them in actual life inasmuch as you are forming them out of life itself. For example, if you are concerned with some question of prices, you will no longer be content merely to trace the question back to the immediate costs of production. You will have to trace it back to the primal phase of all production. You will have to see what the conditions are of price formation right from the primal phases of all production. It is only then that you will be able to trace conditions rightly to any given point in the economic process. In this way, perhaps I may have been able to give you an idea that will at least guide you on your way toward the cardinal question of economics, that of prices. To engage in economic activity at all is to bring about the exchange of products among human beings and this exchange lives itself out in the forming of prices. It is the forming of prices that matters, and in this respect you do not have to go back to anything vague or indefinite. You can always follow things back to the fundamental relationship of value that is brought about by the very fact of work upon the land, the proportion of the population to the available area of cultivation. In this relation you will find what originally underlies the formation of values. In effect, all the labor that can be done must come from the given population, and on the other hand, all that this labor can unite with must come from the given land.
everyone needs what this labor brings about. And as to those who can save themselves the labor on account of their spiritual cultural services, the others must perform it for them in addition to their own. Thus we arrive at the actual basis of economic life. Looking at things in this way, we shall admit that even in our present highly complicated economic life, what was universal in the most primitive conditions, where the simple exchange of goods, shall we say, was the essential thing, still plays its part. The difference is that we are no longer able to see the connection clearly everywhere. But we shall have it before us always when the connection with nature is expressed in our currency notes. Whatever we may do, the connection with nature is always there. Do not let us forget it. It is a reality. Once more, speaking pictorially, let me say that while I am giving my dollar quite thoughtlessly for some product, there is always a little demon who writes on it how much labor actually done upon nature it corresponds to. For this alone is the reality. Here, too, if we would get at the reality, we cannot stop short at the outer surface. It has not been possible in these two weeks to give you more than a few stimulating suggestions to guide you on your way. Nevertheless, as I well know, these are the suggestions that need to be developed in every possible direction. The most important thing of all is that you perceive how, compared with the usual ideas, the ideal pictures we have here evolved do represent something living. If you have absorbed what is living in these picture concepts, you will not have spent these fourteen days here in vain. It is this that weighs on one so heavily. Great issues are impending. Human beings are in need of free and clear insight into the essentials for the healing of so many ills of our civilization. There is much talk of what should be done, but there is little will, ultimately, to dive down into realities and to draw forth from there what should be done. We have gradually departed from the sphere of truth and from the real life of rights, rights that spring forth from the very nature of the human being, and from what must unfold in us if we are to be of value to our fellows, the genuine practice of life. From words of truth we have slid into the empty phrase, out of the sense of right into mere conventions, out of a practical hold on life into dead routine. We shall not escape from the threefold untruth of phrase, convention, and routine until we develop the will to go down into the facts and to see how things are shaped in their own real nature. But if we do so, then, precisely as those who approach the matter as students, we shall be met with understanding. There are so many inflammatory sayings in the world today doing appalling harm just because there are so few people with an earnest will to go into realities. For this very reason, it gave me deep satisfaction to see you here, prepared to work with me during these two weeks, thinking through the realm of economic science. I thank you sincerely. I may express this thanks because I believe I see how significant it is that those who stand in life today as academics can contribute to the healing of our civilization and to the reconstruction of our human life. 
We must endeavor to make economic science more than a mere theory. It must be our aim that it should prove itself of real economic value, so that the labor we are being saved can be put to good use by those who relieve us of it for the benefit and progress of humanity. I believe that in resolving to come here, you were thus mindful of the task of the economist. And I hope that this has been confirmed in you by what we have attained, however inadequately, through our united work. We can hope that we will have an opportunity to work with these ideas again another time. That is the end of Lecture 14, the end of the actual set of lectures, and the end of Part 1 of this book. And I will begin Part 2, and it will be uh, as uh, Lecture 15, I guess, but this is the end of Lecture 14.